Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. This morning we are continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah and we're going to be looking at part two of what I initially was thinking it was going to be a a two-part study. It's going to be a three-part study taking us through all of chapter two. Uh, I've titled Stirred for the Work. Our main text today is Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 5 through 10. But for keeping the context, let's first read verses 1 through 5 of Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, I won't tell another Nisan joke, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. As we just read in those verses, and as we considered in our study last week, the burden Nehemiah had for his people, the Jews, who had returned from exile and were living in Jerusalem, returning 92 years prior to this, living there now still in great distress and reproach, this burden he had for the city of Jerusalem, its walls still broken down, its gates still burned with fire, was a burden that hadn't gone away, it hadn't diminished at all with the passing of time. Four months have now gone by since he initially heard that report from his brother Hanani and the others who came back from Jerusalem. But those things, the state of the people in the city of Jerusalem still weighed heavily heavily upon him. And the sadness that he had been experiencing internally finally showed itself externally as he was serving as the king's cupbearer. The king tuned into the sadness that he saw, maybe with the help of the queen. He asked Nehemiah why he was sad. This opened the door for Nehemiah to share the burden he'd been carrying with the king. But once the king heard, the Lord opened another door, now to make a bold request of the king, that the king would send him to Judah to rebuild it, to do something about the state of his people in the city of Jerusalem, but before making that bold request, Nehemiah prayed to his God. No doubt a humble, desperate, dependent kind of prayer, a quick prayer built upon a foundation of continual, fervent, persevering, night and day sort of prayer life that Nehemiah had already had and been making to his God for the past four months. And as we considered last week, the stirring for the work happened in the praying and the waiting. God had been preparing and stirring Nehemiah, and Nehemiah had responded 
by continually seeking the Lord for His wisdom and His direction and His timing, for Him to open the door. And now God was opening the door, and Nehemiah, who just responded in prayer again, is also going to respond in faith and obedience to what the Lord had already been putting into his heart. And as we're going to see in our verses today, where God was calling and sending, he would also do the providing. He would make a way. And with that context in mind, look again at verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. As I said last week, Nehemiah was in no position to demand anything. He was just a servant of the king. He also didn't have the freedom to just quit his job and take off for Judah. You know what? I don't really feel like the Lord's doing this, and so I'm, I'm, I'm bailing. No, he needed the king's permission. What if he had done that? I'm out, and he didn't get killed. He goes, and he's like, all right, it's a pretty big task. Anybody got some wood? Anybody got some finances? He needed the king's permission, and he needed the, needed the king to provide. But it was in Nehemiah's heart to be sent so that he could rebuild. And again, keep in mind that his request in this verse only came after he prayed to the God of heaven. I point this out again because there's more, way more than even just what I'm going to mention here that we can glean from Nehemiah's example of prayerfulness even this early on in the book of Nehemiah. You know, I wonder how many problems or missteps or hasty decisions, hasty actions, hasty statements we would avoid if we did what Nehemiah did here and made it a priority to pray before we speak, to pray before we make any sorts of decisions or commitments. This was a big request for Nehemiah to ask of the king, but Nehemiah had the boldness to make this big request because he knew that his God was much bigger and that his God was able to bring these things about if they were his will. You ever presumed things about the Lord? You ever put your expectations on the Lord and, and just expected like God's going to be fully on board with whatever it is that you have desired to do or that you just decided to do on your own? And then you're like, hey, God, provide for me. In this. I know I got myself in all this debt. Lord, I know that I did this thing, but like, Lord, bless me in the thing. And Lord, provide for me in, in this place that I've got. I mean, I know I didn't seek your guidance. I know I just kind of, I know you actually were counseling me to not do the thing in the first place. But Lord, meet me in that thing. And Have you ever just seen the grace of God in those places where you're like, Lord, I went ahead, I act, acted hastily, I, know, I knew as soon as I did it, Lord, that was not you, you weren't in the thing, it was too late. And yet God in His grace still walks us through the mess that we've created. I've been there. 
But how amazing to know what the will of God is and then to step into that thing with the sort of confidence that Nehemiah had that if God was in it, he was going to meet him and provide and show up. He knew that his God was able. If it was his will, then he would do it. I want us to call our minds back to chapter 1 where Nehemiah was praying to his God and he said, the Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and keep his commandments. That was how Nehemiah described his God. That is how Nehemiah began his prayer to his God. Nehemiah did not worship a little God who might be able to help with little problems. No, he worshiped the one true God, the Lord God of heaven, above all, ruling over all. The great and awesome God, a big God who can easily handle our biggest problems. And because his God keeps his covenant, his promises, and his mercy with those who love him, And keep his commandments. Nehemiah had confidence in his God in the present because of the promises his God had made and the power his God had displayed in the past. And so for us, our God wants to build into us a greater confidence in him in the present and for the future Because of the promises he's made in the past. The the power he's displayed in the past. I don't know if you're like me in this. But I can easily forget what God has said. I can easily forget what God has done. You ever come to a crossroads and you're like, Oh my God, you, gosh, you, it's like you approach it almost like you've never been in that sort of situation before, but maybe you have, and you forget at this new crossroads, you forget at this new obstacle, that at prior obstacles, at prior crossroads, that God showed up, that God moved, that God did things in your situation, in the situation of others and in your life. It's like, oh, Lord, where, what's happening? And he's like, don't you remember, like, yesterday? Remember what I did yesterday? You remember what I did last year? Do you remember how I showed up when you were 15? Remember when you prayed about that thing, and it, it just seemed impossible, and then I did something about that thing? Remember how I've made promises in my word? I mean, my word is full of it, and I've spoken those things, and I'm like, and we forget. We can struggle with some of the most basic things. God, do you really love me? And I'm not making light of that struggle. But man, God's word is full of a declaration of a God who, who's done everything possible for us to know, man, he loves us with an everlasting love. I mean, what else 
does he need to do to show us that he's loved us by sending his son to go to the cross for us? That's love on display. God wants to build into us a greater confidence in him for right now and for the future. Nehemiah had that confidence. And we see that confidence playing out throughout this book, but we see it also in how Nehemiah is going to respond in these next verses. And so let's continue on, verses 6 through 8. Verse 6, Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, so reference to the Euphrates, that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Notice that the king's response in verse 6 was immediately favorable. His question already leaning towards allowing Nehemiah to go. He isn't like needing to be persuaded at this point. He's just like, Okay, when are you coming back? But he wanted to know, because he valued Nehemiah, when are you going to return? How long are you going to be gone? And once Nehemiah set him a time, the king was pleased to send him. Now, Nehemiah doesn't tell us here what time frame he set for the king. You know, I don't think any of us have ever approached our job maybe gone to a boss and been like, I think I want like 12 years off of work. 12 years, I'll come back. Don't worry. You have my word. <laughs> I mean, how like, at what point in those 12 years does the boss start going like, is they really coming back? I'm not sure if they're coming back. We, again, Nehemiah doesn't say it here. He doesn't tell us explicitly what the time frame was, but from what we're told in chapter 5, verse 14, and then also in chapter 13, verses 6 and 7, we find that he initially spent 12 years in Judah before returning to the king. And then after a brief stay, he was able to take leave from the king again, and he returned to Jerusalem. Pretty amazing. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah added to his initial request by asking, again, at the pleasure, the favor, Lord, uh, you know, king, if it's okay with you, if you feel good about this, you, I mean, you already seem to be okay with the whole 12-year thing, so I'm going to go even a step further. I mean, if you're that okay with things, like, I'm going big. Give me some letters. It may not seem super significant to us in the moment. Like, really, letters? You ask for like, you know, a thousand pounds of gold to be sent with you. 
instead. But he asked for letters for the governors of the region beyond the river that they would have to permit him to pass through till he came to Judah. And then second, he asked for letters for a man named Asaph who was in charge of the king's forest that Asaph would have to give Nehemiah timber to make beams for the construction of the gates and for the city wall and also for the house he was going to live in while he was there. You know, I couldn't help but like thinking of Julian and his woodworking and like, you know, going to Macbeth or something like that and never been there myself. But it's like you do some research, you find out where I can get some good pieces of wood. And that's what Nehemiah did here. I want us to see in these verses that Nehemiah had a plan already in place that God had led him to formulate over the course of those four months of prayerful waiting upon the Lord so that he'd be prepared to answer the king and ask the right things of the king when God finally did open this door. And in his planning, he must have even done some research to find out the name of the keeper of the king's forest so he can know whose name to give the king so he could get all the timber that would be needed. Now, I have to admit that I've never been much of a planner. I'm not the dreamer, visionary type of person. I'm not looking out and going like, 20 years from now. I've got my 20-year plan. I was listening to a podcast, and it's several pastors, and they're talking about their, how they approach things. And one guy was like, it's that, 20 years. 20 years out. Another guy's like, I'm more of a five-year guy. The other last guy was like, I'm a one-year guy. I take it year by year. It's like, I have a hard time even with the whole year. I'm just not a big plan for the future type of guy. But I think it's important for me to say, and maybe this is just for me more than it is for anybody else, that it's not unspiritual, it's not ungodly to plan. And that this is an area, for me personally, I, wanna, I want the Lord to change, to grow in me. You know, living or walking by faith does not mean living without any plans. When we read God's word, what we find is that our God is a planning God. You ever thought about it that way? Our God planned to the nines from eternity past. He's already planned. Before he even created humanity, he already planned to remedy what would happen when sin was introduced into the world. He planned, even before creation, that He would send His Son to save us, to be the Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. He planned that. Do we realize when we read the book of Revelation that God has already planned what the end is going to be? You and I know how the story ends. And that's weird in like our human thinking. Like what in the world? And yet God 
is able to do that. In his sovereignty, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite knowledge, he knows. He knows. Our God is a planning God. When we talk about God having a will, we're saying that he has a plan. Now, having said all that, for you and me, there are times where planning can be bad. It can be bad when it's done from a place of pride or self-service or, or boasting, right? I think it's in James where he says, like, you know, don't boast about, like, you know, we're going to do this, this, and this. Like, well, he's not saying that it's bad to plan. The, the bad part of the planning is, like, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to make it happen, whether God likes it or not. You know, it can be bad, too, when it's done using worldly or fleshly wisdom instead of the wisdom of God sourced in the Word of God. Like picking from, like, what other godless people would have to say about our day-to-day lives or our future. Oh, that sounds pretty good. And we're like, they're not even factoring God into their life. They're, they're living in a place of being separated from God by their sin, and yet they're informing us on how to live a life that, that really honors the Lord and is led by His Spirit. doesn't work that way. Another way plans can be bad is when the Holy Spirit of God is not the one directing us or correcting us as we make our plans. Those are some bad examples of plans. But again, planning can be good. God can use it. Check out a couple Proverbs that speak into this subject of planning. First in Proverbs 16.9 and then in Proverbs 19 verse 21. Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Then in 19.21, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You know, in our planning, it's crucial that the Lord is the one counseling us. And don't we have an abundance of counselors in our day? You know, media is trying to counsel us constantly. Everything, everything around us is seeking to counsel, to influence the decisions that we make, the way we think about things the way that we view other people, what we prioritize in our life, what we value. In our planning, it's crucial that the Lord is the one counseling us. He's the one directing our steps. But praise God, He wants to direct our steps. Wants to give us His counsel so that the things He desires for us are the things that we walk in. You know, everything that we see in verses 5 through 8 makes it clear to us that the Lord had been stirring Nehemiah for the work that he had for him, but the stirring for the work wasn't just what God was doing in Nehemiah's life, but also what God was doing in the life of King Artaxerxes to look upon Nehemiah with favor, being willing to send him 
to promote him and give, it, give him the needed authority as governor to carry out this task, to supply everything necessary for the work to be able to be done once Nehemiah got to Jerusalem. And even, we'll see in the next verses, send a military escort with him to protect him. God had been preparing the heart of the king for this years earlier, going back to when Ezra had come to King Artaxerxes wanting to go back to beautify the temple and teach the people God's law. We find this in Ezra chapter 7. Check out what we're told in the first part of verse 1. The only reason I didn't just continue on all the way through verse 10 is that between like verse 1 and verse 5 is just talking about who Ezra is the son of. Son of Sariah, son of so, son of so, and the son of that guy, and the son of that guy. So I just kind of cut through to the next part, if you're wondering why I skipped. Ezra 7, verse 1, first part of it says, Now after these things in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of, son of, son of. Verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given The king granted him all his request according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Then after the king's letter giving Ezra approval, which we find in the verses after that, 11 through 26 of chapter 7, we find this response from Ezra In verses 27 and 28 of of that chapter, he said this. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord God, uh, Lord my God was upon me, And I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Ezra noted three times in that chapter, three times that the hand of the Lord his God had been upon him. Even saying in one of those times, the good hand of his God. The same thing Nehemiah noted in our text in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8. They're saying, the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. So why did the king do all that for Ezra years earlier? And then do all this for for Nehemiah years later? Because the good hand of God had been upon Ezra's life and was now upon Nehemiah's life. And this pagan Gentile king was being used as an instrument in the hand of God to get his will accomplished through his servants. All these things came about because God was in all of it. 
And both Ezra and Nehemiah gave God all the credit and the glory. I'm sure that there have been times in each of our lives, if we've been walking with the Lord long enough, that, that we can say the same thing as Nehemiah. Man, the good hand of my God was upon me. God was doing something in my life. God was present in my life. God was working in my life. God was giving me favor. God was moving and shaping me. He was doing things through me. The good hand. And have you ever had that experience and then later on thought like, you know what? I didn't really give God the praise, the glory, like I should have when I saw that his hand was upon me. When I saw that his hand was working in my life, would we be people who notice, like Ezra and Nehemiah, man, God's doing something. Why? Because it helps us to stay in that posture of worship, of adoration. God, you're good. That's the good hand. Not God's hand, his hand. His hand working. That's a good hand. He's because it's good. Do we recognize that God's hand, when God's hand is at work, it's a good thing. When He works in our lives, He has our good in mind. We may not feel like that in the moment sometimes. We may have a hard time seeing how God's good hand is in my bad circumstances. God, how can I see your good hand when our culture is just going worse and worse? But can I remind us this morning that those things that we see, the corruption, the sin, the brokenness, the destruction, all those things, all the stuff that we're like, God, how can, you, how can your hand be working even now? That what we see doesn't change who God is. It doesn't change how good His hand is. It doesn't change the reality that God is always working. And His hand is always good. His plans are always perfect. His timing is always perfect. I mean, can you imagine? Nehemiah has only known about this for four months. These people in Jerusalem have been living in that state for 92 years. Was God to blame? God could have stepped in. God, you could have stepped in 50 years ago. You could have stepped in 91 years ago, God. Was it because God, God's hand wasn't good then? Was it because God wasn't powerful enough then? He wasn't willing to do something then? No. But there was nobody clearly like Nehemiah who had the heart not just to seek the Lord, but then to do something when God said, go, do it, be a builder. How many other people was God going, I want a builder. I want somebody who's really going to seek me, who's going to have my heart. But Nehemiah was that guy. And because of Nehemiah being that guy, God's going to use him to stir other people, to gain, to regain that heart that they should have had all along. 
Why are we living in destruction? Why are we vulnerable? Why are we living in this weakened state? Why have we settled? How many times have you and I settled for something less than God's like, I want to do this. I want to see you flourishing. I want your life to be fruitful. I want to use you. I want to fill you with my joy. And we just settle for something less than he said he wants to do. That was the people in Nehemiah's day settling for something. And yet it just takes somebody else that God stirred and starts to step into all that God has for them for the rest of us to go, oh, really? You mean I could, that could be different for me? You mean I don't have to be living in bondage to sin anymore? You mean whom the Son is set free is free indeed? I should be walking in freedom? I don't need to be enslaved to my sin? How many times have you been encouraged by something that God is doing in someone else's life? And yet God is wanting to do that with us, making us those people that other people would look at and go, man, God could do that with me too. Ezra and Nehemiah, they gave God all the glory. And clearly here for Ezra and Nehemiah and also for the Jewish people in Jerusalem and the broken down state of the city of Jerusalem, God made a way where previously there was no way. 92 years. You think the people in Jerusalem ever thought things were going to change? I, I feel very confident to say they had just resolved in their own minds, this is life for us. There's no way things can change. There's no way anything could be any different. Brokenness is our norm. And yet God was doing something. He was making a way. And this is our, something our God is in the business of doing. He is a way maker. Isaiah 43, 19 tells us this very thing from the mouth of God himself. The Lord speaking there in Isaiah 43, 19 says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. What is he saying? I can make a way where there is no way. I can do it. And I will do it. But will you see it? Will you know it? Will you pay attention? Will you be in tune with the thing that I'm doing? The people in Jerusalem probably thought the walls and gates would never be rebuilt, never thought that the king of Persia himself would approve and fully fund that happening, and yet God did it because his good hand was upon Nehemiah's life. But what about the things we're facing where there doesn't seem to be any way? Or those things that God has put in our hearts and we just don't know how he's going to bring it about? Or maybe the things happening in the lives of others or in situations that we know about that just seem impossible apart from God's divine intervention. 
As I said earlier, God wants to build into us a greater confidence in him in the present and for the future because of the promises that he's made and the powers power that he's displayed in the past. The one who's made a way in the past can do it again in the present. Guys, we need to trust him. Let's look at our final two verses here, verses 9 and 10. Then I went to the governors, verse 9, in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captive, captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. Nehemiah had asked for some specific things. But God stirred the heart of the king to do even more than Nehemiah had asked for, making him governor of the region of Judah, giving him a military escort to travel with him those 800 plus miles from Shushan to Jerusalem, and that military escort no doubt also reinforcing to anyone. Nehemiah came across that he had come in the full authority and blessing of King Artaxerxes himself to carry out this work. Nehemiah had received letters from the king for the governors in the region beyond the river, and according to the Elephantine papyri, dating back to the time of Nehemiah, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Samaria being the region where the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel, once had been. Nehemiah brought the king's letter to Sanballat and were told that Sanballat and Tobiah, who we'll continue to see in this book, were deeply disturbed that a person had come seeking the well-being of the children of Israel. And it's deeply disturbing to read that they were deeply disturbed, isn't it? How are you deeply disturbed that someone cares about these people? You know, I couldn't help reading this and then see a parallel to the issue of abortion in our day. Today, if you are maybe not aware of it, is actually the National Sanctity of Life Day. Sanctity of Life Sunday. Fifty years, fifty years since that first time that the Roe v. Wade was put in place. Or, or acted upon. Just like Sanballat and Tobiah were deeply disturbed when they heard that a person had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel in our day, there are those in our country and in different parts of our world who are deeply disturbed and even offended that we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, would seek the well-being of children in the womb. Desiring to see women choose life for their unborn, their pre-born babies. And it's disturbing. It's disturbing to see how disturbed the world is. And it can be hard. You think about the things that we see and the course that our world has gone. And it can, it can make us feel like nothing's ever going to change. How is anything going to change? How are 
people that are so staunch in the pro-choice movement? How, How can their hearts ever change? How can anything be different? But I want us to be encouraged today that our God is in the business of affecting change at the heart level. I saw a video, and I think actually Josh Dean had put, originally shared it in his story on Instagram a, a few months back. And it was a video of a handful of uh, OBGYNs who each of them were giving a testimony of how they had performed themselves hundreds of abortions. I think even one of the ladies had said she performed upwards of like 2,000 abortions. And that God had done something in their life to where they changed their minds and saw that, you know what, this is murder. This is a real life in the womb. This life has value. And, and they no longer perform abortions. They are no longer for abortion. They are now for life. And, but we could just think like, man, no, it can never change. People are doing this and nothing's ever going to change. God can do it. God can make a way. Listen, we have to be people who will help build the wall and stand in the gap before the Lord in prayer on behalf of the unborn. But also on behalf of the mothers who have been taught or led to believe or made to feel that abortion is an option or maybe their only option. I believe the Lord is looking for men and women who will pray and then build, will be his hands and feet to reach out to minister to these pregnant women and help them to choose life for their babies. It's not enough for us to just go, end abortion. What about all the women who are feeling like, that's I, I have to. We need to be ready to minister. We've got to be ready to, to show up, to bridge the gap, to build the wall, to be those who strengthen and meet and, and help and provide practical sorts of things. Even that's the church's job, I believe. Who else is going to do it? We're the ones who should value life more than anybody else in the world. From the womb to the tomb. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter the skin color, doesn't matter the, the socioeconomic status of the person, doesn't, mean it, doesn't matter if that person is fully functioning or born with disabilities. Every life has inherent value given by God Himself. And guys, we have to uphold that in love, in grace, but with truth. Side rant, but again, it's just a parallel I saw. I mean, not to mention like how this even parallels what we see in anti-Semitism in our day. The disturbing sort of things of people being disturbed that would be for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. We have to pray. Now, this was true for Nehemiah, but it's also true for us. That often when we've been stirred for the work of the Lord and, and begin taking steps of faith and obedience, ob- obedience to what God has been putting in our hearts, the enemy is there to oppose. And that opposition must be expected. You ever, 
You ever take a step of faith or you're doing something and then opposition comes and you're like, what's happening? Why? What? What's like, no, we need to expect it. We need to kind of like take a step back before we even take the step step of faith and just in our minds go, there's going to be opposition. We need to be prepared. We're in a spiritual battle. We need to understand that the response of Sanballat and Tobiah points to a much bigger opposition taking place in the spiritual realm, revealing the desire of our spiritual enemy to want to keep people in a spiritual state of destruction, brokenness, weakness, discouragement, hopelessness, vulnerability, separated from God, a slave to sin, and just plain lost. That's where the enemy wants to keep people. If we're not disturbing that, probably not going to be opposition. Because we're just like settled into this place where it's like we're fine with how everything is. But when you and I actively take steps to carry out what God has stirred within us, called us to, in Christ and for Christ, know that the response of our spiritual enemy is not going to be favorable. The devil and his demons, they're going to be deeply disturbed. But that hostility and persecution and opposition will be what we face, but Jesus is with us. And if he's for us, who can be against us? Just two final things I want to point out here in these verses before we come to a close. The first thing I want to point out is that Nehemiah went. Duh, Jared. <laughs> Does anybody say duh anymore? Duh. Actually, some, when I think about it, it's like, man, it actually sounds pretty rude. <laughs> not very kind. Duh. Hopefully we just say it about ourselves and not about other people. He went. He didn't just pray. He didn't just have good intentions. You ever just have good intentions and it doesn't ever go anywhere? You pray, but you never act upon it. God stirs your heart and gives you a heart of compassion, but it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead to action. No, Nehemiah went. He acted in faith and obedience to what the Lord had spoken into his life and called him to. He went, but I want us to notice, secondly, that he went because he was sent. He went because he was sent. It's reminded me of what Jesus said to his disciples the day he had resurrected. I love Jesus. Jesus clearly had a sense of humor. His disciples hold themselves up in this room, close the doors out of fear of the Jewish religious leaders. They're all huddled together. They've got this thing where they're like hiding out. And Jesus just, he doesn't even, he doesn't knock. He just shows up in their midst. There's Jesus right there, right? Peace. (laughs) Those needed words from Jesus, peace. Like, yeah, no, they're freaking out. We read this in John 20, 21, it says, Jesus, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. So second time he said it. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. 
And so for those of us who have received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, meaning we receive the salvation of Jesus, we've been sealed with the Spirit of God, born again by the Spirit, Jesus is also sending us. He's sending us into our homes and workplaces. He's sending us into restaurants and grocery stores and our favorite little shops. He's sending us into parks and open spaces and basketball courts and golf courses and all kinds of places where other people are at too. He's sending us on mission just as the Father sent Jesus so that lost people who are separated from the Father because of sin will hear the gospel of Jesus, be shown the love of Jesus and find salvation and forgiveness and life and hope in Jesus Christ, just as we have. Guys, we go all the time, right? But as we go, do we, are we thinking, I've been sent. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus is going to us, I've sent you. I've sent you. When we get up in the morning, are we, are we thinking, man, Lord, you're sending me to my roommate. You're sending me to my spouse, you're sending me to my kids. We step out the door, Lord, you're sending me out into this world. Lord, you're sending me into my workplace. I am a sent ambassador of Jesus Christ. It'll start affecting the way that we view our day and our interactions with other people. Lord, you've sent me. Lord, open doors. Lord, give me your favor. God, would your good hand be upon me? I just, I want to, and I think I've shared this with you guys before, but do we know that God's good hand is upon our church? Just a reminder, if I didn't already share this with you back when it happened, but the principal had come to our Easter service last year and had a conversation with my wife, and she said, you know what, I really believe that the school has been blessed. We're, We're doing as good as we're doing. Because you guys meet here. The good hand of God upon our church. The favor with our custodians. That guy's like family. We love Douglas. Douglas loves us. Douglas asks for things that I would never ask. Having our stuff stored in the room through the pandemic. Like the good hand of God. And we might go, that's just a little thing. That's not a big, no, God's hand. But do we see that God's hand is upon us? Do we see his good hand even this morning in the things of our lives that we're going through? I'm going to have the worship team come back up. I don't know what God might be speaking to you through this message of ways that he might be stirring you or convicting or correcting or encouraging or strengthening, wanting to reinstill hope maybe. But there's a lot here for us to pray through. There's a lot for us to meditate on and say, God, what, what, how do I live these things out? God, I want to be someone who prays before they speak, who prays before they, he acts, before she acts. Lord, I want to have confidence in you. Greater confidence, greater trust, greater faith. 
God, would you provide? Would you show me your will? Would you formulate plans for my lives? Would you direct my path so that I'm walking right in the center of your will? God, would you stir people around me just as God was stirring the heart of the king? God, stir the hearts of those around me, even unbelievers, God. Do something in their lives. Bring change at the heart level. God, make a way where there doesn't seem to be any way. And God, help me to remember that I've been sent. Because God's going to send us out of this place today. He's going to send us out into our week and into our work and into different relationships. Are we bringing Jesus with us? Do people see Jesus in us? Are they being drawn to Jesus through us? That's what God desires to do. And he's able to do. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I'm just, I'm challenged by the example of Nehemiah. I'm challenged, God, by the things that you did in and through his life, Lord. The things that you did in the king's life, Lord, how you... Lord, cared so deeply for the people of Jerusalem and the city, Lord. That, God, you weren't going to leave them any longer in that state that they had settled in for 92 years. And, God, I pray for us today, Lord. Maybe some of us have settled into things where, God, you're going, that's not what I had for you. That's not what I want for you. Lord, would you stir us out of complacency. Lord, would you stir us out of compromise? Lord, would you stir us out of indifference? And God, more and more would we be people of prayer, people of action, people of hope, people who live by the word of God, people who share the gospel of the Son of God. In love, with the love of Jesus, Lord, we need you. We know us. We know what we're capable on on our own, Lord. But God, would you make a way? God, would you bring change at a heart level, even and start with us, Lord. Start in our hearts. And then, God, in the things that we see around us, Lord, whether that's the issue of abortion, Lord, whether that's just people struggling in sin, people dealing with depression, Lord, if it's, God, whatever that might be, Lord, God, help us to bring the hope of Jesus wherever we go. Lord, help us to remember that we've been sent. And God, would we see you move in powerful ways in our day, in the lives of people, that, Lord, would affect what we see in our culture, what happens in our world the decisions of our government. God, we plead for you to move. And God, would your good hand be upon us. And look, you know, maybe someone here today just doesn't first have a relationship with Jesus. God's hand is there. His hand is there, and you know what he's, you know what he's trying to do with this hand? He's trying to bring you to himself. To let you know, look, I love you. I've got grace for you. 
I want to forgive you. I want to do something in your life. I want to I want to I want to bring about something completely new in you. And if that's you this morning, you've never opened your heart fully to Jesus. You've never surrendered to him. You never made him your Lord. This morning that can all change. If that's you, would you raise your hand if that's anybody in here and you're going, "Look, I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that I'm forgiven, that my debt's been paid." That heaven is what awaits me. Is that anybody this morning? God, you know the hearts of each person, Lord. You know where each is at. Lord, you know ways that your people are needing you to move and show up and work. God, struggles, hardships. God, whatever that might be, Lord, would you meet your people? And God, if there is anybody, they didn't raise their hand this morning, Maybe they're watching or listening later on and and that's them. They want to receive you, Jesus, Lord. Would they just in their hearts cry out to you, Lord? Would they open up to you, surrender to you, humble themselves, Lord, and just say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you to save me. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Be my God. Be my friend. Jesus, I believe in you. I put my trust in you today. I believe you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. Father, would you do something radical in my life? Make me a new creation in Christ Jesus. And help me to live for you. Just encourage you, if you've made that prayer, if you've cried out to the Lord in that way this morning. The Bible says you will be saved. The Lord, as we respond to your word and songs of praise now, as we take the communion elements, as there's an opportunity to be prayed for by the prayer counselors, God, continue to move in our time. Continue to move in our midst and in our hearts, Lord God. Have your way. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.